Based on this 14 verses from the chapter 13 in Hebrews, our message title for today is Final Instructions. Final Instructions, because this is the last chapter, and in this 14 verses, the, the writer begins to tell the Hebrews, tell the members of the church, he tells them some final practical instructions for their Christian walk. He first begins by telling them, love others, love others. As we read in verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. Love is the most important characteristic in the life of a Christian. The Bible tells us in Galatians in chapter 5 verse 22 that the first manifestation of the Holy Spirit within the life of a believer is love. The Lord Jesus himself, he tells us that those who are truly his disciples will be characterized by what? He tells us in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. It is clear the message of love being the most important characteristic in the life of a true believer. Now, it is important for us to understand that Christian love is not defined by an emotional experience, but love as action. Christian love is not defined and demonstrated by what you feel, but by what you do. As the Bible tells us in 1 John in chapter 3, the Bible says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. It is important for us to demonstrate our Christian love by what we actually do. There will be plenty of times when you will not feel very loving, but you love in obedience to God. How else would you obey the Lord when he says that you must love your enemies? You won't feel like it, but you do it in obedience to him. In this passage, in the next verses, the writer gives them three specific examples, three specific ways through which they could show and demonstrate Christian love. In first place, he says, love others, show love by practicing hospitality. Show Christian love by practicing hospitality. He tells us in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And you may say, well, is this really written in the Bible? God wants me to open my home to a stranger? Well, we must understand that in those times, they were not simply referring to, he is not simply referring to strangers in general. Hospitality in those times were a very was a very important act of kindness to accommodate preachers and other Christians who were trying to escape persecution. They would seek refuge and Christians would open their homes so they could be found safe in their homes free from any persecution because of their faith. This was indeed a decision on part of Christians that could be proven to be very dangerous, but not by the, for the reasons that we may think about. But during those times, when Christians would open their homes to accommodate those who were 
trying to escape persecution, there are also those who pose themselves as fake Christians, trying to catch the real ones so that they could deliver them to the authorities. Not only that, there are also false preachers, false teachers, who would take advantage of hospitality to derail the faith of real Christians. You may recall that the Apostle John, he wrote his second letter to warn Christians about the danger of opening their homes to an imposter. And yet later, John, he wrote his third letter about the importance, exhorting Christians about the importance of practicing hospitality. And so as you can see, Christians during those times, they had to have a very keen sense of discernment, not to fall into a trap. And yet, the writer to the Hebrews tells them, no, it is really important. It may be dangerous, but the Lord will guide you. The Lord will give you discernment. The Lord may give you wisdom. But do not neglect to show partiality, to show hospitality to strangers. The Bible says, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. He is referring to the fact that at times in the past, when believers would open their homes, unbeknownst to them, they actually had opened their homes to angels. Angels had stayed with them and they didn't even realize that until a point. We see, for example, uh, Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that they had angels inside their homes that they were being hospitable to. Of course, for us in the New Testament, in the 21st century church, ever since the church has been founded, what the writer is telling us here is not that we should practice hospitality in the hopes of hosting angels. What he's saying is that hospitality, can, it is such a blessed manifestation of Christian love to others that it can bring unknown blessings, not only to those who receive it, but also to those who practice. There are indescribable and unexpected blessings that hospitality can bring to believers. Of course, for us today, most of what we call hospitality can be demonstrated by each and every one of us inviting a, a brother or a sister to come over for lunch or dinner. And not because you'll be expecting them to stay living with you for days or weeks. Of course, if a crisis arises, such as in the event of a natural disaster, in Christian love, we should demonstrate and practice hospitality to its full definition. He says in second place, show love to others also by remembering prisoners. Not only by practicing hospitality, but also by remembering the prisoners. He says in verse 3, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also are in the body. He's saying, remember the prisoners. And once again, he's in the same way that in hospitality, he was not talking about strangers in general. Here, he's not simply specifying, not specifying and saying prisoners in general. But he is referring to the fact that those preachers, pastors, Christians who could not escape persecution, who did not find a place where they could stay, who were not rescued through hospitality, but they were caught by the authorities by committing the incredible crime of saying that they were Christians and not denying the Lord and continue to preach faith in Jesus Christ, they will be apprehended and thrown into prison. 
What he's saying is practice hospitality, but those who are not able to escape persecution, it is important that you continue to care for them. Remember them. Do not forget them because now they are behind bars. During those times, it was very important for Christians to continue caring for their brothers who had been thrown in prison because of their faith, especially because of the conditions that they were going to face in those places. John McRae from Christianity Today tells us of the conditions that they would suffer 2,000 years ago during the times of the early church. He tells us imprisonment was preceded by being stripped naked and then flogged, a humiliating, painful, and bloody ordeal, unbearable cold, lack of water, cramped quarters, and sickening stench from few toilets made sleeping difficult. Prison food was poor. Most Prisoners had to provide their own food from outside sources, and most cells were dark. Prison officials back then had no obligation to provide food for those who had been caught in a terrible crime, including those who were behind bars because they were Christians, simply preaching the gospel. And as he says, it was very important for Christians not to forget them because most of the food that they would receive would come from outside sources, from their brothers and sisters bringing something to them. And prisons back then were not like the prisons we have today with so many quote-unquote amenities for the inmates. But back then, prisons were like this. And this is one of the most famous prisons in Rome, Italy. This is the Mamertine Prison. This is the cell where the Apostle Paul was chained to that column you see in the middle. It was here in this cell that the Apostle Paul was executed by beheading. It was also in this very same cell on that column that the Apostle Peter also was chained. He was taken outside only to be crucified upside down. Today, the Mamertine prison is one of the uh, most visited uh, tourist points in Rome, Italy, because of the fact, as it says in that plaque above that column, because of the fact that Paul and Peter, the apostles, they stayed there and they were executed after their stay in that prison. It was very important for Christians to continue to care for their brothers thrown behind bars. And what specific was the care that they could provide? A historian from South Africa says, Christian care for prisoners mainly consisted of concrete material support, which could mean supplying prisoners with food or other necessities, as well as freeing them from prison by financial means. Even poor Christians could support prisoners by visiting them or by trying to persuade the prosecutors or guards to treat the prisoners in a more humane manner. It is unbelievable what our, our brothers had to endure simply because they were Christians to the point of even being executed for not denying the name of Christ. Today, the Christian love that most of the time we demonstrate to those who are inmates is the spiritual ministry performed through chaplains and volunteers who go to the, who go to the prisons as we have here in our church, prison ministry in House of Correction in Massachusetts and in Rhode Island as our brother Peter Lima coordinates that and, our, and Pastor Steve Thompson. Uh, it is indeed something that we should continue to pray for, that the Lord will be glorified in the lives of those who are incarcerated, incarcerated so that they can come to know the Lord.
He says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. He's telling them, you should remember them because you are in the body of Christ. You are in the church. When one rejoices, all should rejoice. But when one is mourning, all mourn. All should be mourning as well. And he is saying this specifically because of what we said last month, if you recall, in Hebrews in chapter 10, that some of them, they had experience in prison, imprisonment themselves. The Bible says in Hebrews in chapter 10, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. They could show sympathy to them, not only empathy. You show empathy when you care for someone in their affliction, but you have never experienced what they are suffering. You can only say, I can only imagine what you're going through. I have never gone through that, but I can imagine what is happening in your life. That's empathy. But the writer says that they could demonstrate sympathy because sympathy means that you were in their shoes. You could say, I know how much you are suffering there because I have been in prison for my, for my faith myself. I know what you're going through. And he says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. It was truly important for them to continue demonstrating the Christian love by knowing the atrocities that those brothers were experiencing inside those cells. But thirdly, he says, show love to others, show Christian love by being a faithful spouse. By being a faithful spouse. He says in verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The family was the very first institution created by God. Therefore, God honors the union between a man and a woman through marriage. Not only that, the Lord also honors marriage because marriage he represents the union between Christ and his church as the bride. These are the reasons why the writer is telling them, telling, he's telling the married couples to keep their marriage undefiled. That word undefiled there simply means pure, without the stain of sin. Now, it is important for us to understand that this, irrespective of our marital status, whether you are married or single, all of us are called by God to avoid immorality. The word immorality in the Bible is the word porneia, from which we take the word pornography. If you are a Christian, you will avoid any and all types of pornography. As the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, flee sexual immorality, flee porneia. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, in Hebrews, in chapter 13, in verse 4, the verse that we are concentrating in right now, here, he's not only speaking of those who committed some immoral acts. He says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Here, he's not just talking about someone who is immoral, someone who is addicted to pornography or is sexually deviant. 
But he is specifically talking about those who are fornicators and adulterers, as, as those are the ones whom God will judge. And who are they? Fornicators are those who are single, but engage in sexual activity reserved for marriage. Adulterers are those who are married, but engage in sexual activity with someone other than their spouse. The Bible is explicit and says that fornicators and adulterers, as well as the immoral, they will be judged by God. In what sense? God brings his judgment upon anyone who practices sexual activity outside of marriage. There are consequences for those who commit such acts, such sins, either in this life or in the life to come. For those who repent of their sins and abandon them, the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel, his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. The avenger there means the one who executes judgment. The Bible is telling us that God himself is the one who brings judgment on those who commit sexual sins. The Bible tells us that there will be consequences. The judgment are consequences that those who commit such, such sins will experience in this life. Such as the shame of a stained reputation. Or the trauma of a broken family through divorce in many other ways. However, since they have repented and abandoned of their sins, the consequences on this life may be inevitable. However, they are forgiven. They have a clean slate and they are safe in their eternity before the Lord. However, those who remain in those sins... And they are recalcitrants. They are rebellious before the Lord. And they do not repent and abandon those sins. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is clear. Someone may say, well, preacher, I am single, but I like to mingle. Well, uh, I am married, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living in a loveless marriage. I have needs. Oh, I, I, well, I am, I am attracted to the same sex, but God is love. Love is love. Doesn't the Bible say that God is love? Yes, and the Bible also says that do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. The message is clear. There is no compromise. Yes, God is love, but God is also holy and just. And if we truly follow the Lord, we will obey his word. The Bible tells us that for those, there will be no inheritance into the kingdom of God. It is impossible to be saved and to continue in these sins. The Bible is clear. So he tells us that in our Christian love, being demonstrative in our Christian love, 
We should practice hospitality. We should remember the prisoners and we should be a faithful spouse. But now after speaking specifically of how we can demonstrate our Christian love and our testimony, the writer will then tell us and tell them, and tell them one love that they should avoid. Yes, we should certainly practice Christian love, but there is one love that we should avoid at all costs, and that is the love of money. Love, not money. The Bible tells us in verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Now, that expression, your character, that word character there means your course of life. What is your drive? What is your ambition? This is your compass. This is what is most important to you. Everything you do is toward the goal of making money. Nothing else matters. Money is literally the bottom line. However, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. What the Bible is saying is that the love of money is a thirst that can never be mitigated, that can never be satisfied. The more you have, the more you want. The more others have, the more you want what they have. You become a covetous person. Instead, the Bible says in Hebrews in chapter 13 in verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Being content with what you have. How much would it take for you to be content with what you have? A million? A billion dollars? What is your number? How much would you say that you would have to have for you to say, okay, God, now I don't need another penny more. What is that for you? Well, I think for us as believers, it is important for us to find out what God says about this. How much is it that God says that we should have and with that we should be content? He tells us in 1 Timothy in chapter 6, he says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If you have food to eat and you have clothing to wear, you should be happy. According to God, if you have food in your belly and you're not walking around naked, you should be happy with that. That is all that it takes. The Bible doesn't say food covering plus a million dollars. Food covering plus 10,000 shares of Amazon and Apple stocks. Ooh. It's food and clothing. If you have food in the fridge and you have some outfits in the closet, according to God, that should make you content. Now, please understand, this does not mean that Christians are forbidden from having material possessions as God provides them. What the Bible is talking about is if your desire is to be rich, eventually you will love money more than you love God. As the Bible continues to say in verse 9, but those who want to get rich, what happens? They fall into temptation in a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge man into ruin and destruction. Money becomes 
your object of worship. Everything is geared towards how much money you can make. And eventually, the throne of your heart is no longer occupied by God, but only by the thirst of covetousness, of your desire for more money. The Bible tells us in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, by desiring extremely for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Did you hear that? First, it is important to note that the Bible doesn't say, as some quote, that money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that. The love of it is. But also, the Bible tells us that some, by longing, by desiring so deeply to be rich, they apostatize. They wander away from the faith, proving that they were never saved to begin with. They have wandered away from the faith. Now, I want you to notice this. In Ephesians in chapter 5, it says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We had already read that the immoral and impure persons, they will not be saved. However, did you know that the Bible also says that those who love money, they will not be saved either? And why? Because the Bible says that the covetous person, he or she is an idolater. In other words... Money is their God instead of the true God. They worship money. They worship possessions. It is important for us to realize that our souls, that our character should be free from a covetous spirit. Specifically because the Bible tells us about it in one of the Ten Commandments. What is the very last commandment that the Bible tells us in Exodus in chapter 20 verse 17? The Lord says, thou shall not covet. Eventually, if money is my goal, I will worship money more than I will worship God. This is what happened to the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 through 26. He came to the Lord, presumably seeking salvation. But when the Lord said, well, give everything that you have to the poor, testing him. And what did he do? He turned his back on Christ and walked toward his money. The Bible tells us, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Many a times we quote that last verse, and I quote it many times, the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. But in context, but in context what he is mentioning here is that the Lord will never forsake us. He will never leave us in the provision of our needs. God is faithful in his supply. As the Bible tells us in Philippians in chapter 4 in verse 19, our God will supply all our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. We can trust in the Lord. We don't have to trust in things. We can trust in our God. If we believe that God was able to perform in our lives the greatest miracle of them all, our salvation, how can we not believe that God can perform lesser acts? The Bible tells us so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will men do to me? It is important for us to trust in the Lord our God. As the Lord Jesus himself says in Matthew in chapter 6 in verse 24, it is impossible for us to serve God and money at the same time. 
you have to make a decision. Which one do you want to serve and follow and worship? But thirdly and lastly, in his instructions, the writer says that we must love Christ. Love others, love not money, love Christ. I want to ask you, how do you show your love for Jesus? How do you show your love for him? Well, I, I come to church. I, I, I contribute. I participate in ministries. I volunteer my time. How do you show your love for him according to the words of Christ himself? The Lord Jesus tells us that we show our love for him in this manner. John 14 says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will live his life according to the Bible. If you truly love the Lord, the word of God will be precious to you. The word of God will be the compass for your life, will be the anchor for your soul. You love Christ by how much the word of God is growing within you. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, that is much important for us to grow in the grace of the Lord, but also in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is through his word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us, through his word that we grow in Christ's likeness. And so we demonstrate our love for him. In his final instructions, the writer tells them how they can love the, love the Lord, love Christ, by loving his word and by being attentive to those who preach the word correctly and rejecting those who preach the word falsely. He says, love Christ and his word by remembering the faithful preachers. By remembering the faithful preachers. The Bible tells us in verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The writer here, he is not talking about their current pastors and elders. He is not talking about their current preachers. He talks about those in verse 17 of this chapter when he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. But here he says, remember those who led you. The verb is in the past tense. He is referring to those who had introduced them to the message of the gospel. Those who had introduced them to the word of God. To the true love that they should, love, that they should have for Christ. Once the word is illuminated in our hearts, we can love the Lord as we should. And that can only happen when someone takes the time in manifesting Christian love toward us, in sharing the message of the gospel. We should appreciate those who were used by God to brought us to salvation, to brought us to Christ. He says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. He could be speaking of the apostles who were the first evangelists and they could have preached the gospel to many in that church of the Hebrews. For example, James, the brother of John, and the other James, half-brother of Christ, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, they could have been the ones who introduced them to the gospel and preached the word of God to them. 
However, by the time that this letter was written, they were already dead because they had been executed for their faith. What he is saying here is that we should remember those who introduced us to this wonderful love for Christ in our love for the word, who preached the word faithfully to us. He says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. He is encouraging them, despite of their persecution, despite of the trying times that they were experiencing, that they should remain faithful as the apostles were, as those who once preached the gospel to them. They were faithful unto death. And he's saying, you should do the same. You should follow the same example if you truly love Christ, even unto death. But do not give up. Do not go back. Do not apostatize. Do not abandon the faith. No price is too high for you to remain faithful to the Lord. Imitate their faith in continuing faithful. But he says that we should love Christ and his word not only by remembering those who have given us the word correctly, but also by rejecting those who are false preachers. Now notice this. He says in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This verse is a transition from what he had just said in the verse before, that they should imitate the faith of those who had introduced them to the word of God. But above all, they should imitate the example of Christ. Christ is the ultimate example. As Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He is saying, yes, you should follow those who are faithful in bringing the word to you, but above all, follow Christ because he never changed. He never changed his mind. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. But this verse is also a transition into the next verse, into verse 9, where he says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Jesus is the same. He never changes. His word never changes. Let us continue to be faithful to him in our love for him in rejecting preaching that is not based on the Bible. By rejecting preaching that distorts or misinterprets the Bible. You and I must be very discerning as to what we are exposing our minds and our hearts when we are hearing someone who called themselves to be a preacher. It is very important for you to have great discernment. And the best way for you to know the difference between true and false preaching, you know what it is, is for you to know the Bible well yourself. It's for you to be a devout student of the Bible. Don't simply accept being spoon-fed. But it is important that you know the word of God yourself so that you'll be able to discern. Be like the Christians of Berea in Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and 11. The great five-star general, Paul the Apostle, was preaching to them. You would think, well, Paul was preaching to them. They should accept everything that he was saying. They would go and they would check the manuscripts. They would, they would check the scrolls to see if Paul was saying exactly what the word of God was saying according to what Paul was preaching to them. And so all of us should do. Don't fall simply because of a title over a man. It is important for you to show your love for Christ by knowing his word well. As he said, if you love me, you will keep my word. You live by it and you know it.
study the word of God. And he says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who are so occupied were not benefited. Obviously, it seems that 2,000 years ago when he was writing to those Hebrews, the very, the different and strange and weird teaching that they were being exposed to was about foods and the dietary laws of the Old Testament. As you know, God instituted the food regulations in the Old Testament to set the people of Israel apart from the custom of the other nations and also to protect them from unhealthy dietary habits. God then, he declared certain foods to be unclean. Foods such as pork, blood, lobster, and many others, as we see in Leviticus in chapter 11. They could not eat many of those foods. However, today, for us in the church age, for us as a church of the new covenant, of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus himself, he has declared all foods clean. The Bible tells us in Mark in chapter 7, Jesus said, There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. The dietary regulations, the food regulations of the Old Testament were simply an external symbol of the internal holiness that the people of Israel should have. Was simply a representation of the holiness that they should seek to understand the holiness of God. That was the reason of those food regulations. But now for us in the New Testament, as the Lord Jesus himself has declared, there are no unclean foods. We now are no longer under, we are no, no longer under those laws of the Old Testament in their ceremonies, in their rituals. The moral portion of the law of God, of course, it is still with us in our new covenant, in our pursuit of sanctification, of pursuit of our, of God's holiness in our lives. But now... As New Testament believers, we have the Holy Spirit of God abiding within us. And he is the one who produces holiness within the life of every Christian. We do not need external symbols to induce us to think about the holiness of God. He says, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Those food regulations were simply external symbols. They had no power to produce spiritual benefits in the life of an Israelite because he was not eating lobster or because he was not eating something else. But it was simply to point them to the holiness of God. They were not benefited, but now God has declared all foods clean because we have the presence of his Holy Spirit within us. As it says in, verse, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. And so, if you want, have a lobster. 
But just know this, it is important that you know the word of God and do not fall for different and weird teachings. But know what is said truly in the word of the Lord. And lastly, he says, love Christ and his word by remaining following him. He says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What is the altar that he is referring to? He is referring to this altar in the tabernacle inside the Holy of Holies. The high priest would go inside the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would present a blood sacrifice from an animal. And he would dip his finger in the blood. And he would sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. That lid on the top that was called the mercy seat. He would do that only once a year to provide atonement for his sins on his behalf and also on behalf of the people. To this date, the day of atonement or Yom Kippur is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Now he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. You see, the high priest, he could cook and eat the flesh of the animals who were being sacrificed before God. He could do that with the other priests. However, there was one flesh of an animal that the high priest could not eat. And it was the flesh of the animal whose blood would be presented before God on the Day of Atonement. For that, the Bible says... They had no right to eat of their flesh being offered as a sin offering on the Day of Atonement. Instead, the Bible says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, they are burned outside the camp. The high priest would have to have the flesh of that animal being taken outside the camp of Israel and burnt at an offsite. Now you may ask, what does this have to do with our love for Christ? What does this have to do with our love for the word? Well, he says, he explains in the next verses. As he says, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. He is referring to the fact that our Lord Jesus, he was crucified outside Jerusalem. He was crucified outside the walls of the city. Literally, he was crucified outside the camp. He is referring to the fact that those who were, because of persecution, being tempted to abandon Christianity and go back to Judaism, he is saying, do not go back to the old camp. Do not go back to the camp of Judaism. Do not go back to the camp of the old religion. But go outside, stay outside of that, of those ceremonies and ritual and all those rituals that cannot benefit anyone spiritually. But go outside to Christ, remain following him faithfully, even bearing his reproach. That is, even if you are suffering the same accusations, the same uh, suffering, even if you are receiving all that persecution, remain following him. And someone in the church could say, why? Why should I remain faithful to Christ? Some of my brothers have already been thrown into prison. 
We cannot open our homes in time for them to escape persecution. Some are being treated and scolded and flogged. There's a lot of suffering in Christianity. I was safer in Judaism. Why should I do that? I'm seeing so much affliction here in this life following Christ. But he says, one great reason why they should remain faithful in our last verse. He says, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. How many of you know that life on this earth is not perfect? Life can be tempting, can be trying. Life is not easy sometimes. Life has a way to try to chip away your patience, your endurance. But beloved, the Lord Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you will have afflictions, you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer, do not give up your hope, because I have overcome the world. No matter what you are going through, remain faithful to Christ. Do not go back to the old religion. Do not go back to your old life. But stay outside the camp, following Christ in his faithfulness. Because it is the Lord who is preparing a place for us. Not on this life, not on this earth. But an eternal city, a heavenly city. That all who are found faithful will be found in that place soon and very soon and it is so wonderful to know that it is not about how good i am how good you are it is all by the grace of the lord it is the same that can happen to you as it has happened to all who are christians who are believers who are saved who are here today if you have never repented of your sins jesus christ calls you to repent of your sins and receive the work that Christ Jesus has already done for you. If you believe in what Christ did for you at Calvary's cross, he will forgive you and save you for eternity. It is wonderful for us to know that despite the afflictions and sufferings of this world, we will see the Lord one day, soon and very soon, face to face. And we will never ever again remember the trials of this life. But it will all be worth it when we are with him. And so there it is. The writer gave, gave them some final instructions. Love others. Love not money. But love Christ above all and his word. Let us pray.